Hello and welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. We're having another walk here through the Welsh Hills today and we want to discuss a topic that we have actually been talking about for weeks now and today we realise that it's going to be too difficult to put all of it in one podcast so this is this is going to be uh, two or three, maybe four podcasts depending on unfolding events. So the a question that's been on my mind as we watch the the daily news of the kind of news we watch, not just to say the mainstream media, is uh, <laughs> is the UK going to have an economic collapse? So yes, definitely something that uh, is on my mind uh, to the the future and how bad things are going to get because it just seems to be like the news unfolding daily seems to be worse and worse. So we uh, we've put it into different. So we're breaking this topic down into a few different podcasts because there's different areas to cover. This one is going to be mainly about uh, history. So we thought we'd do podcasts in a sort of uh, past, present, future sort of format. So we just talked today talking about the past and economic collapses in the UK and around the world uh, in the past and what triggered them and can we draw any similarities between what triggered them and what happened then and with what's going on now. So I hear a lot of people talking about the 1929 Great Depression and we've been discussing that and wondering if there are any similarities. So let's, let's just, just start off talking about what, what actually happened then. Yeah, that's a good place to start. <laughs> but a little preamble's in, in order. And, because there is a question, well, why? Why history? Well, if you're asking a question about uh, an impending economic collapse... Uh, in the UK or perhaps in other parts of the world in, in perhaps in the near future and I think that's what is on your mind and it's on a lot of people's mind at the moment actually then it seems to me that well let's have a, let's have a look at what's happened in the past vis-a-vis economic collapse you know what has been deemed economic collapse because it's by no means obvious what economic collapse actually means. Well, no. Well, through our, yeah. our lengthy discussions, we've yeah. decided that really, I mean, everyone is unique. So yeah. it's quite hard to actually come up with a hard and fast definition yeah. of what yeah. economic collapse is. Yeah, they, 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 they all have unique features because they're kind of obviously deeply embedded in, in, in the specifics of certain historical moments. At the same time, I do think you discern features... If you uh, think and analyse in a certain way, and that way of analysing strikes me as the, the sensible way, is to, is to regard everything as system, and the, as systems interlocking with other systems and subsystems and so forth. In other words, having a kind of a systemic approach. But there's the rationale for, for thinking historically. The 1929 crash is a good place to start. It's widely regarded as being the crash, the typical crash, uh, the crash uh, which we can model a lot of our thinking on. And it's certainly been in the mind of people, particularly democratic socialists, Bernie Sanders and uh, 
John McDonald and uh, Jeremy Corbyn have all sort of taken a lesson from that period in their thinking to inform their thinking. What happened then in 1929? Now I'm only going to give broad brushstrokes. There's plenty of information on this and if you find it interesting, and it is interesting, it's worth researching. There are videos on it, books on it, extensive commentary on it. So I'm only going to give you some broad brushstrokes. What happened was that in 1929 the stock market crashed in New York. Just the, price, the prices of shares just fell and fell and fell and fell and bottomed out. And it seemed as though there was nothing anybody could do. And famously, uh, stockbrokers uh, were jumping out of windows, you know, and, and committing suicide because they'd just lost everything overnight. Now, it was a period of intense speculation on the stock market. And the, the whole stock market was basically a bubble that had to burst. And we're familiar with bubbles bursting from the South Sea bubble onwards to the dot-com bubble and so forth. You know, this is just a, this is a feature of uh, gambling on the ownership of the means of production, in other words, shares. What had happened was in, in the US was that, that banks as well as dealing with people's savings and, and, and the the day-to-day economic banking requirements of families, in other words high street banks, were also investment banks. And they were investing people's money, people's savings. They were also encouraging Everybody to have a punt on the stock market. You get like penny stocks. But of course, people were borrowing money. There was a lot of cheap money. People were borrowing money to invest, mortgaging the house to invest. Ordinary people, you know, not expert investors. And of course, when it went bump, a whole lot of people just got bankrupted, and a lot of companies got bankrupted and, and had to lay off their workers to the extent that there was very rapidly 25% unemployment in the US. This thing spread around the world. Because even then, way back in 1929, it was a global economy. And that's why I, I kind of say restricting your analysis to the UK is probably not that helpful because it's a global economy. And even in 1929, it went like wildfire around the world. It was particularly devastating in Germany. Germany was already economically crippled by paying reparations for the First World War. The Treaty of Versailles had extracted conditions from Germany that they had to give a large part of the country's profits, gross national product, to France and Britain to recompense for the huge expense that those countries had undertaken to, to fight the, the First World War, which, because Germany lost, it was their fault. <laughs> you know, winners, the, winner, the winner of a war writes the history. And that was, that was the, uh, the deal. So, so Germany was on its knees anyway. But a lot, a lot of American money was being invested. Germany and suddenly it stopped because there wasn't any anymore. And that spiralled it down even, for, even further into, into collapse. It, it, it happened in the UK again. Because of the, the fact that it was the global economy. It was the global economy. And the UK went down and there was huge unemployment. We had hunger marches. 
the famous Jarrow marches where the shipbuilding stopped on Tyneside in, in the northeast. There were safety nets in the UK. In fact, the UK safety nets at that time, by which I mean um, welfare or social security, and it was it was amongst the most generous in the world, I believe, from a bit of research I've done. But it still was vastly in, inadequate, and people starved. And so you had the famous Jarrow March, where the shipbuilders, the working men, marched from Jarrow in the northeast to London to petition Parliament for a bit more help for bailout, basically. Did they get it? I don't know. Immediately, I think not. You know, I think they got some fine words and and a bowl of soup and told to fuck off. But I, I, I would need to look into that. But I mean, actually, in the UK during this period, there was a period with a Labour government uh, as well. And uh, anyway, the the story the story is that in the US, the the economists, the the people in the government that dealt with the economy and the Treasury and the, the Fed and all the rest of it, uh, uh, said, well, the market will correct itself. Because they were classical economists and they, they took Adam Smith's invisible hand seriously. You know, that supply and demand is, regulates itself. They're a market, it's a self-regulating entity. And that what would happen is, because there were so many working people out of work that they'd be prepared to work for low wages rather than starve on the on the dole. And and they would in the sense using Margaret Fascist phrase, they would price themselves back in. And then people would invest because there was a pool of cheap labour and that, knowing that they could make some money. Because if labour's expensive it's harder to make a profit on a particular product. So they said, well, we've got to do is sit tight and it'll all come back together all on its own because of the invisible hand. <laughs> this is President Hoover. At, the, at that time, the country had these tent cities in parks and out, out on the edges of cities called Hoovervilles, which, just, which were just these kind of homeless places. Because a lot of people lost their homes, couldn't pay the rent, couldn't pay the mortgage, whatever. And just people living in tent cities, Hoovervilles in pretty abject poverty and there was malnutrition and all the rest of it and the thing that transpired was that the market didn't price itself back in and for a reason with hindsight that seems kind of obvious is that the people who were out of work had got very little money to spend because the safety nets weren't very good so that means demand dropped in the economy Nobody was buying any any stuff. So factories were making stuff, but they couldn't sell it. So they were then de- uh, downsizing their production, laying off workers who were getting less money. So there was even less money in the economy to buy stuff. It was a it was a sort of a consumption side, you know, collapse. The economy collapsed because nobody got any money to spend on the products, and it spiralled down, and the market couldn't correct itself. Because the impetus of the downward spiral was too great. So this is very, well, it's yeah. almost exactly the same as the, the business will sort it out, a uh, quote from the Tories. Yeah, well, you see, neoliberalism is a return to the idea that the market will correct everything. I heard a guy on the radio say that this morning, leave it to the market, 
leave it to the market. You know, g- given that we've got this uh, labour shortage, not enough lorry drivers, blah, 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 that the market would correct it, and, it, and very often it doesn't. You know, there might be a few circumstances where that, that mechanism actually works, but mostly it doesn't. It's just a fable. <laughs> you know, it really, really is. But this has been an economic dogma that returned in the 1970s under Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Because what happened, what happened back, you know, back there in 29, and it's the American side of the story that, that helps us to tell the story because they dragged the rest of the world with it. There are specific differences, as I said, I've mentioned Germany and in the UK. But, the, you know, the, you get the picture in its broad outlines much better by looking at America, which led it all. It's where it started, because it was the, by far the biggest economy. You just see everything more clearly. So what happened was that in 1933, by which time FDR, Franklin Delaney Roosevelt, was the president, and he recognised that the market wasn't just going to correct itself, that the invisible hand wasn't going to do what the liberal economists, classical liberal economists, were saying it would do. He was also pressured by the American Communist Party and the two American Socialist Parties and the big unions and union membership went up as, uh, by a big amount as a result of the crash. Suddenly people thought we've got to unionise. And it's kind of logical, isn't it? Get, let's get together so we can do something about this. And they pressured Roosevelt to pump prime the economy or to stimulate the economy with government works. The very thing that, that liberalism said you shouldn't do. And the very thing that Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan said you shouldn't do. They did it. And the government actually employed the unemployed, the 25% unemployed, and gave them jobs. And they built roads. They built all the American national parks, put in all the infrastructure for the national parks. They built the Grand Coulee Dam, huge dams for hydro projects. They put artists to work, painting murals. It was just a government programme. And this, this gave the economy a fillip and it, it sort of gradually rose up out of the spiral. That was the way of breaking the spiral, was by government action and spending. Basically then, Roosevelt saved America from a communist revolution <laughs> and the, the socialists and the communists and the trade unionists agreed to let him do that if, if he would try an interventionist economics, economic programme. Now, of course, the, the war intervened, of course, didn't it, you know, so you might say that the thing that rescued the world, the world economy was the war, because nothing stimulates an economy like a war, and putting your economy on a war footing, <laughs> you know. But that's a, that is another question. So that's the, the story of that. So basically, the thing was triggered by uh, financial speculation, by un- unregulated finance capital, getting overrated and creating bubbles. That's what started it all. What helped it to continue was, was a, a belief that markets will always correct themselves. Just a fable, just, just an absolute... It's magical thinking, basically. 
and this magical thinking that, that was uh, resurrected in the late 19, 1979 by Mrs Thatcher. They just resurrected it. Because interventionism, Keynesianism, you know, stimulating the economy, was it in its own kind of problems. Because the, the, there, is, there is no complete answer to the, to the crises of capitalism. You know, there are circumstances in which even Keynesianism produces other problems, and it was stagflation. And uh, it was actually Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan's uh, real project was to smash Union Power, which had become highly developed in both Europe and, and the US. And it was class war, basically, waged by the oligarchs on trade unions that had become very powerful. Its ideological aspect was that this uh, a reintroduction of the belief, the magical thinking, that the, the market will always regulate itself and that you can force labour to price itself back in to the market. 2008 then, now you should say to me now, um, so I'll say... So how, how about a more recent uh, example? Yeah. It, 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 in a nutshell, that's you know a very broad brushstroke of the, the 1929 crash, you know, and, and the following couple of decades, which involved a world war, you know, the biggest war that the planet had ever seen, which killed 50 million people. Whether that's an outcome or not, we can debate, but it, it is historically what happened. And the, the thing, the, the phenomenon, exposed the horrible nature of finance capital, casino capitalism, gambling with the economy. He's, he's actually gambling with people's lives on a mass scale. It exposed that, and it exposed the inadequacy of free markets and the ideological character of the story that gets told that markets will always correct themselves and that they're, they're somehow divine almost, you know. And, and so all of that, 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 those are the lessons, I think, to, to, to take from 1929. So coming to a more recent example of the 2008 crash, mm. Mm. Uh, are there any similarities uh, yeah. this time? I would say that there, there were. Because this was also uh, triggered by something going terribly wrong yeah. in America, wasn't it? Yeah, what, what I would say is that it's got many specifics of its own. And again, I'm on, I can only do a broad brushstroke in this kind of context. And there's plenty of information on this. I mean, I'd watch the film, you know, The Big Short. And I know it's a fiction, but it gives you the gist of what went on. So in 2008, there was a huge collapse of the stock market again in, in the US. And a, a, a collapse of banks, basically, investment banks. And the Lehman Brothers went bump in the US. And they were allowed to, to go bankrupt. And they did. They a big bank, big investment bank going bankrupt. So uh, did, uh, did people get their money back or do, was it I don't just think, gone? I don't think they did. I think there was some... There's obviously, they got like some kind of insurance scheme, a bit like we've got here, you know. If your bank goes bump here, the government will guarantee you 80000 if you're just an ordinary depositor. So I don't know exactly what happened to the people. You'd need to research that. But it's basically, this was unthinkable. 
The other banks weren't allowed to fail, they were deemed too big to fail. Now let's get a bit of context to what caused this bump. Now, you have to go back to the uh, 1929 to understand this, strangely. In, I think it was in 1933, one of the first things that, that, that happened under Roosevelt was the Glass-Steagall Act in the US, with similar uh, measures being taken around the world, which said that the investment wing of a bank had to be kept separate from the, the high street banking, the savings wing, looking after the, you know, people's money, acting as a custodial for people's money, giving them banking services for fees, like right, you know, checks and loans and all this. That that had to be separate. So it kind of took that kind of some of that casino element out of of the the banking system. And the Glass-Steagall Act was still on the books in Clinton's time. And now Clinton repealed the Glass-Steagall Act because he was under pressure to give finance capital a bit more of a free rein to reduce the regulations. And remember. Under Thatcher and Reagan, this was their objection was the government regulates too much, and this rolled on, this uh, deregulation of finance capital, this reintroduction of a casino element, is something that happened, uh, instigated by Thatcher and Reagan, who were inspired by Milton Friedman and, and Friedrich Hayek, uh, etc., and carried on by by Clinton, a Democrat presumably some kind of social democrat and carried on by the British Labour Party when Tony Blair and uh, and then Gordon Brown were in power they repealed similar legislation in the UK Gordon Brown Brown did and it, you know he just let the city he let the uh, the London stock market do what they like so this is all part of you know the market knows best with governments interfering too much and Labour parties or parties ostensibly uh, supporting the working class and representing the working class did exactly the same thing, which is frankly disgusting. Yeah. So the casino element was reintroduced, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall and um, the big bank in, in the city of London and Gordon Brown saying, no more boom and bust, we'll let the Bank of England sort everything out, we'll just get out the way, no more boom and bust. Bloke's got a PhD in economics, you know, it shows that it is not a science. No. It is not a fucking science, it doesn't have... Maybe very... he slept through most of his classes as well. I don't know, he's very, he's very, very smart, and a bloke that smart got taken in by this shit. You know. So anyway, that's what happened, that's the background of that. And of course, there was this, this enormous global speculation... And basically it was a scam, right? And uh, how it worked was, it was basically defaults on mortgages that crashed the world economy. And in America they'd got this thing called uh, subprime mortgage. And it, it was done here as well. And what they did was, these, un these unregulated capitalists, uh, finance capitalists, casino capitalists, they gave mortgages through through what's called predatory lending to all sorts of people who they pretty well knew were going to default on them. Right? They gave mortgages very easily to people who, who it would be very, very difficult for them to repay. But the way that they did, they did this 
was to produce instruments and this is this is what all the deregulation allowed them to do and the instruments in question were mostly what's called CDOs, collateralised debt obligations and what that is, it's a package of debt it's just like a bond that contains like a thousand elements of debt in it now if you, if you and I had taken out one of these subprime mortgages and our mortgage lender would divide our debt into a thousand little portions and put them in, put one thousandth of our debt into a, a collateralised debt obligation with a thousandth of somebody else's debt and a thousandth of somebody else's debt. And they'd mix in, and all of this was like pretty risky debt. There was a good chance we would default, right? But what they, what they did was they put in some good debt, some debt that was absolutely safe into the package. You know, like some very, very dependable bonds or something like that. So th there was an element of good debt in the package. So it, and, and then they traded CDOs in, on, on a market, you know, on a free market, with the charts and the candles and the ups and the downs and the, and the bull runs and the... with all the bull runs and bear markets and all of that palaver. And these things were traded globally. Collateralised debt, debt... It's just really disgusting. Co co Collateralised debt obligations. And the thousandth of our debt had been there somewhere. And there was a lot of not very reliable debt bought and sold like that. Now, if you're a, if you're a stock market trader, there, there, there are these companies called writing companies. And there are several of these, and uh, Moody's is, is one of the big ones, it's the one I know about. And they write debt, they write entire countries, you know, to, as, as to their kind of creditworthiness. And these bonds were rated by Moody's as AAA, which is the highest rating. In other words, really, really safe. If you buy one of these, you'll make some money and you won't lose anything. Right? Moody's rated the collateralised debt obligations with all this mo bad mortgage debt in it, all this subprime mortgage debt in it, as being absolutely fucking copper bottom. But of course they collapsed. People couldn't pay. There was a bit of inflation. There was a bit of unemployment. People couldn't pay. 10 million people lost their homes, they were foreclosed, foreclosed on in America. Disaster. That brought, because these CDOs, collateralised debt obligations, were traded globally, the whole global fucking economy went down, the banks, uh, runs on banks, and it, it, there was a run on the Northern Rock in the UK. Everybody wanted their money out, and as you know, you know, banks practice fractional reserve banking. Again, they were deregulated, they could have run on very low reserves, 2%, I don't know what. So everybody's coming round the block to get their money out of Northern Rock because they've heard, you know, a, a, a rumour, but, but like a fairly sort of reliable rumour because of all these CDOs going bump, right? And, and, and Northern Rock can't give them their money because they don't have it. You know, the banks don't have, have your money. They haven't got it in a fucking store, in a vault underneath the bank in the cellar. They haven't, you know. They only have 2% or 5% or something. And Gordon Brown and Bill Clinton let them do this to a dangerous extent. So, I mean, Northern Rock becoming a whisker of going bankrupt and all those people losing their money. Imagine you go to your bank, I want my money. They say no. Yeah. Similar thing happened in Greece, which we could perhaps talk about. I might even do a separate one on Greece, which is like a, a more localised version, you know. It's a, it's a localised... It's all a spin-off of this scenario. We're still living through it, by the way. It hasn't played itself out yet, you know. So, uh, Northern Rock, uh, Gordon Brown nationalised it. 
just basically wrote a fucking edict, says this is this belongs to the government now. They just went and printed a load of money at the Bank of England and bought it, basically. It said this is ours now. And they bought the majority shareholding. Yeah. So that was a different that was a different tack from what happened in the in the US, they just started printing money and basically giving it to the banks, you know. So that money didn't go into the economy, as with FDR, the money went into the economy. So it created it created wealth. It was an investment, but in this case, the banks just kept it within the, their their speculative casino system. It didn't find its way out into the economy, and then the rest of us were forced to sort of pay for it with with austerity, which we've had ten years of, all across the Western world. And the uh, and the banks just basically filch this money because the way they the way they did it in the US they just let the money just go straight in, into the banks so the banks had like credit, you know, and it, that money was used for stock buybacks by big companies. So instead of investing in new production or investing in employing people or in training or any of these things that could produce some ongoing ongoing wealth ongoing prosperity. They didn't. It was the system was engineered so that the already stinking rich and the investment banks basically collared all of that money. So they were printing money and they were just putting it in their coffers in the form of increased stock price because they'd create runs on the stock, right? Because they'd borrow money from the bank at 0% interest, right? So no interest. So you're getting, you're getting virtually free money. Use that money to buy stocks. Pump the stock price. So the shareholders were very happy because their, their, their stock portfolio was twice as much overnight. And the CEOs and the, all the executives of those companies all have, have all got deals. Okay, They all have deals that say your bonus at the end of the year is directly linked to the stock price. So they were all getting bigger bonuses than they'd ever had because the stock price had gone up because they'd pumped it with this free money that the government was printing. So the economy was stimulated, but in a very special way, that only a few people benefited. The rest of us got austerity, stagnant wages, cuts to public services. In the UK, they're like closing public libraries, you know, and reducing health care, and just, just a whole range of removal of services. And as you guys say, stagnant wages. So you know, nobody, nobody pro progressing in terms of their in terms of their prosperity through their work. And of course, you know, lots of people dispossessed of their homes. And again, there were tent cities in the in the US again after Hooverville. And the reason, basically, the same is allowing speculative casino capitalism a free reign. And refusing to, or, or, or refusing to stimulate the economy so that everybody benefits. They did stimulate the economy, but, but in a way that only the, uh, the investment banks and the already stinking rich benefited. Goldman Sachs made 30 billion out of the crash. God. They caused it and made 30 billion out of it. Oh, and that, oh that makes you sick. It makes you sick. So th that is economic collapse of that type. I mean, there's something going on in the Lebanon at the moment, which I'm going to look into a little bit, and I might do that as an interesting times one-off that would nevertheless feed into this. 
this talk because that's kind of a localised thing. But from what I understand, it's the same thing of the, of oligarchs grabbing grabbing the money, grabbing the wealth of society and offshoring it into the British Virgin Islands and all of these places. And uh, meanwhile, if you're just an ordinary person, you can't move your money, right? If you've got relatives abroad and you want to send them some money, you can't. So they've locked down the economy, except for the very, very rich. But I'll look into that, because it's another, it's another instance of the same thing. Anyway, that's kind of what I would mean by economic collapse. You know, you get mass unemployment and or austerity. You get, you get uh, a situation in which major, major institutions of the economy, financial institutions, actually cease to function properly. And you'd also say about this kind of economic collapse that it's built into the system, that it's waiting to happen. You can see that. You can see how it's waiting to happen. And it's ideologically fuelled. There are ideas behind it. And it has a dimension of class warfare. The 1979 Mrs Thatcher Ronald Reagan um, uh, war on government intervention in the economy was basically a war on trade unionism and they both smashed unions and union power has, has never recovered from what they did to it. It was class war uh, by the oligarchs uh, on organised labour so that the oligarchs could carry on being in charge and carry on taking the lion's share of the, the productive surplus of a society which is produced by society. It's not produced by hard-working individuals or entrepreneurs or lone geniuses. It's everything is produced by all of us together. So that's the story of economic collapse, and I would say it's inevitable under capitalism, and the, the likelihood of it happening uh, increases when finance capital is allowed a free reign and he's allowed to do what it likes and doesn't have any and constraints like the, and, the, and gambles with our future. Part of the point of Brexit was to uh, give finance capital much more of a free reign, wasn't it? Yeah. De I'd, I'd, deregulate I'd, everything. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it has this ideology of anti-regulation behind it, you know. The first thing that Johnson, wanted to, Johnson and Cronies wanted to do as soon as the UK was out of the EU was deregulate was to remove environmental protections workers protections they're already doing it with the lorry drivers because the EU said you can only drive so many hours per week or per shift yeah, to avoid them falling asleep at the wheel and crashing yeah I mean if you're yeah. in charge of 40 tonnes of earthling metal going 60 mile an hour down the motorway the last thing you want is a driver that's exhausted it was very, very fucking sensible. So it's a very, yeah, very, but very sensible. That's rule. the kind of thing that they want to. But they, apparently, they were tyrannical rules that we were living under the uh, the, the boot of the EU with these awful safety rules. That I, people I mean, have. The, 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 stu the stupidity is beyond yeah. any, any kind of reckoning, to be honest with you. So that's where we are. I mean, I think that's like that helps us to understand having that historical understanding. And I urge people to look into it. What's the big short? I know it's I know it's a Hollywood fiction but it'll, it'll give you the gist and 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 research this the the, the uh, 1929 
and it's the, the it's knock-on effect in the UK and in Europe and in Germany particularly, but also in the it's absolutely fascinating history, heartrending. These are times of terrible, terrible suffering. And I suppose there's a little bit of an aside in my mother's last kind of couple of years of life. I spent a lot of time quizzing her about. That was because because her memory was going. She, you know, she gained dementia, but she had this, her memories of, of of her childhood and the deep past become more and more vivid, and she lived through that. And they starved, and they had this enormous family, you know. And the, the welfare man came round and said, "You've got to sell the table," because there were benefits, but they were means tested. You know, and how how her dad would take any work, you know, try and get work on the roads, or he'd go and help the farmer pick potatoes, and sometimes he'd get paid with a bag of potatoes or something like that. And then my grandmother wouldn't eat, so that he could have something to eat, so he'd have the energy to it. She's the whole kind of story, very vividly. She's a good storyteller, my mother, you know. Uh, They lived through it, and my dad's family asked my dad about it when he was alive, so I thought they'd done rather better. She says, no. Granddad was out of work for, for ages, you know, and it was really, really hard. Really hard. So, uh, look into it. And my mother always used to tell me this story. She said she'd go to school, because she was, she was born in 1925, right? So, she was kind of quite young when it kicked off. But it went all the way through the 30s, right up to the war. There was, uh, you know, and, and the British economy wasn't faring very well before 1929. It was... It was very stagnant compared with other parts of Europe and compared with the US. So it was a bit, le- a bit less of a jump into the, the slump, as they called it here. Because they, were, they weren't doing very well anyway. But my mother said to go to school for breakfast, she'd have like a spoonful of powdered milk, a teaspoon of powdered milk. After your breakfast, they got to school on, you know. It's like it's just impossible to imagine, isn't yeah. it? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's astonishing and... It, as I say, I urge you to research it if you're at least interested, because these are the quintessential examples of economic collapse. 1929 and, nine, and 2008. And the, one of the, le- as I said, I've sort of illustrated what the, what the lessons are, but, you know, you want a really big lesson, is that, that capitalism is inherently unstable. And it collapse is waiting to happen just for a few circumstances to fall into line for it to happen and, and for it to be quite a lot of suffering in both cases 10 years of of suffering obviously we're at a different point here vis-a-vis safety nets and general general uh, prosperity and wealth but also other crises you know it's got its, it's got its specifics each situation has got its specifics it's just a whole list it's... of crises that we're going to be talking about <laughs> in the next podcast yeah. it's a long list yeah but that, that will give you an example of what we mean by economic collapse and what we mean by crisis. OK, well, I hope you enjoyed coming on our walk with us today. <laughs> Wish you were all here because it is a really beautiful day. It's stunning, isn't yeah, it? It's absolutely, it's absolutely mind-bogglingly just, beautiful. The sky's just so blue. It's actually, it's actually pretty hot today here in the autumn after all this rain that we've had. <laughs> So I hope you found that interesting and please do tune into the next podcast and maybe the one after that because uh, we we are going to come to a conclusion about the end of all of this. All right, we'll speak to you soon, everybody. Stay safe.